Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Rena Gosser, and I will be your host for today's podcast. Today, we will be chatting about biohacking with Christy Jen, Clinical Pharmacy Manager at Honor Health Deer Valley Medical Center, and Carolyn Oxensis, Clinical Pharmacy Specialist in Hematology Oncology at Freydert and the Medical College of Wisconsin. This emerging hot topic was reviewed and discussed extensively by the ASHP Council on Therapeutics. Thanks for joining us today, Christy and Carrie. So to start us off, Carrie, can you provide us a little bit of some foundation? What is biohacking? Sure. Thank you, Rena, for the introduction. Biohacking is a term used um, often to describe what's called a do-it-yourself biology movement. In recent years, we've seen an increase in reports of individuals or citizen scientists using scientific methods to conduct research and create materials, but they're in a non-academic or an unregulated setting. So when we use the term biohacking, that typically refers to um, the experimentation or exploitation of genetic material. There's a broad range of what this can include. Experimenting with insect or plant DNA is an example. An example of medical biohacking is attempting to create or home grow medications such as insulin. Information regarding setting up a lab is easily found online, so these self-built labs or community labs can really be set up using commercial products and household objects. And I think it's important to note that the intention of biohacking isn't necessarily always malicious. Often it's meant to promote information sharing, um, foster collaboration, and advance scientific discovery. And many biohackers consider themselves entrepreneurs and eventually hope to sell perhaps some of the products that they create. However, the concern is medical biohackers may unintentionally release biologic matter in a way that causes harm to personal health, property, or the environment. There is also the potential for biohackers to create biologic material with malicious intent. For example, releasing a substance to cause harm. An extreme example of medical biohacking, uh, which might sound familiar to the listeners, is someone using or modifying known gene editing technology and creating or selling uh, something like a do-it-yourself gene editing kit. Thanks, Carrie. It sounds like that there's quite a range there from, you know, some simple modifications to basically MacGyvering your your biology to to meet some end result. You did mention that it is unregulated. Uh, Christy, can you expand on that for us and and kind of describe what kind of government oversight there may be or regulation that exists regarding any of the the types of biohacking practices? Yeah, thank you so much, Rena and Carrie. Actually, it has been really difficult for the FDA, the EPA, or even the FBI to regulate biohacking. As Carrie previously mentioned, when something impacts the human health, environment, or property, 
That is typically when government regulation or oversight occurs. Currently, there are regulatory gaps since much of what we have currently pertaining to laws and regulation focus on what we call big bio or institutional science. In an essay written by Dr. Ishimoto, she noted that if a DIY project doesn't have any big private or government funding, it typically circumvents the triggering of these federal laws. A great example of biohacking that initially didn't trigger regulation until it impacted the market is when glow-in-the-dark plants generated large financial support through Kickstarter, and they were able to raise about $500,000. This group promised those who financially supported this project that they'd be able to grow the plants in 12 months, and their plan was to insert genes from bioluminescent bacteria or fireflies to then create this glow-in-the-dark plant. When people became concerned about uncontrolled release of these plants into the environment, that then triggered regulation. And when this happened, the biohackers decided to stop growing the plants themselves and then encourage other people to use their own DIY bio kits to grow these plants. Eventually, Kickstarter ended up banning the sale of these DIY kits and the project never came to fruition. So that's an example of harm to the environment and how you know, regulation kind of stepped in. In another example of harm to human health, a biohacker, Josiah Zayner, developed a glow-in-the-dark mead by using yeast protein for fluorescence. The FDA then stepped in and deemed that fluorescence protein as a food additive and deemed it as unsafe for human consumption. So we already talked about harm to human health, harm to the environment, when I think of harm to property in the context of biohacking, this usually occurs when intellectual property is impacted. So a good example might be the creation of medications or therapies based on existing published data. Some biohackers in the name of social justice may develop similar therapies that are deemed more affordable. So a good example of this is insulin or a medication for lipoprotein lipase deficiency. In Europe, uh, this drug for LPLD glyber had an estimated cost of about a million dollars per treatment. And so some biologists developed a cheaper version of this using different technology, and then they asked other scientists to help test this product on animals. That pharmaceutical company who owns the patent to Glybera would consider this as, quote-unquote, stealing intellectual property. However, those biohackers or biologists see this as an opportunity to create therapy that is affordable to those who suffer the condition. Nevertheless, as we see biohacking evolve, we will see how each regulatory body will attempt to regulate them. Other examples of regulation that are not really specific to biohacking, but because they have some purview over a certain product, so a good example would be the FDA. Anything that they deem as a drug, so anything that treats, cures, diagnoses, mitigates a disease would be considered a drug. And so raw biological materials, traditional drugs, and DIY CRISPR kits are considered drugs and would be under the FDA purview. The FDA did state, and I want to say this is in 2017, that any use of the CRISPR gene editing kit on humans would still be considered gene therapy and would be regulated by the FDA. Some biohacker spaces under their own code of ethics would follow some safety standards like the CDC's biosafety and microbiological and biomedical labs as your minimum safety standards. And so 
although they're not regulated, these biohackers will employ some sort of code of ethics to ensure that there's um, safety mechanisms in place for these different spaces. Globally, there's, you know, the United Nations does monitor the genetically altered organisms as they have an impact on other countries' native species and potential use for bioterrorism. There's also the European Federal Office for Consumer Protection and Food Safety that, and this is based in Germany, that have prohibited DIY bio and genetic engineering outside of designated facilities. Lastly, the FBI, just kind of uh, really looking at it from a bioterrorism perspective, the FBI is, according to some of the articles that I've read, is the only organization really that has been willing to openly collaborate with biohackers. It's been said that, you know, because the FBI has engaged with these biohackers, they're able to work closely with them in identifying or mitigating potential concerns related to terrorism. Thanks, Christy. That was a really great overview of, of where things currently stand, and it sounds like there's a lot of opportunity yet to, to really get at the root of how these things are, are going on and being released for, you know, societal consumption. I know when I was in pharmacy school, we, we never really talked about biohacking or anything fairly similar. So I'm curious, Carrie, if you could tell us a little bit about your thoughts on what we should teach our learners or how we should teach them about, about biohacking. Right. That's a great point. I really think that awareness is the first step. Like you mentioned, um, some of us have, have not even heard of, of biohacking. It's a, a newer technology um, and not often publicized. So hopefully this podcast can reach ASHP members and take that first step to increase awareness. Many of us who have direct patient care roles are aware of many issues our patients face, such as financial toxicity and medication therapy and the challenges patients face obtaining their prescriptions. Patients share with us their creative solutions, so to speak, such as obtaining medications from other countries, sometimes using medications intended for veterinary use as well as complementary or even alternative treatments. Working in the field of cancer, I've personally experienced this when working with cancer patients and discussing their therapy. And in today's day and age, the possibility exists a patient might be participating in medical biohacking to solve some of those drug access issues. So when we review a patient's medication history, We need to be sure to ask specifically about uh, self-made medications. A way to do that might be to ask about compounded medications or medications not from the pharmacy. That can be a way to open up the conversation with the patient. I'm not sure how many patients would specifically recognize the word biohacking or associate it specifically with medical biohacking since there are so many things associated with it. But the trust that we establish uh, with a patient and between the patient and pharmacist often leads to them revealing information, which they might not have passed along to the rest of their treatment team. So as pharmacists, we should make a concerted effort to incorporate questions regarding personally engineered materials in a neutral but a direct manner uh, when obtaining medication histories and also model this for our learners. Thank you, Carrie. 
Christy, would you add anything to that in terms of factors that we should be considering when we have a, a patient in front of us and we are trying to get at the root of whether they may have some biohacking in play or that could factor into their care? Yeah, definitely. As a pharmacist in particularly in my previous practice in emergency medicine, you know, I feel like I feel that, you know, many of these patients will likely encounter in the emergency department because there's so many ways that one could biohack. Uh, one that may be important for a pharmacist to conduct is just a really great medication history with a patient. And it's not just, you know, medication history, but really you know, getting to know these patients and asking them questions. Oftentimes, these patients might come through the ED because maybe their condition isn't well-managed. Maybe they're having some sort of toxicity from their medications. Some of the literature about biohacking, there is a danger that patients may just want to develop their own medications and will want to forgo actual evidence-based approved, you know, medications. Patients um, sometimes will come in or will insert implantable devices that may present with infection or other adverse outcomes, like device migration, rejection of the actual device by their own body. Talking with patients in a non-judgmental manner may help elicit more information on the actual device themselves and the rationale for use. In addition, knowing which device a patient may have will potentially mitigate other issues, such as you know potentially maybe a patient having to go for an MRI. Understanding and obtaining this information from the patient on how the device was implanted will provide more information. How sterile was that environment? Are there any potential issues for bloodborne pathogen exposure? Are these patients sharing these devices among each other? There have been animal studies too showing that some of these implants may actually cause tumor formation. So there are definitely safety concerns about these biohacking, particularly with devices that pharmacists need to be made aware of and even, you know, other healthcare providers. Again, approaching these patients without judgment will allow for relationship building and candor between the pharmacist and the patient. I do want to kind of talk about, I know that this topic was extensively reviewed by the Council on Therapeutics. The Council did create policy on the use of unapproved gene therapy products, drugs, biologic, and medical devices, or otherwise known as biohacking. This policy is really great as a reference for for all the pharmacists and pharmacy students because it really talks about uh, what the potential harms of biohacking may be, but more importantly, to really highlight that, you know, this is definitely a new area that we all need to be. Thank you, Christy. You know, we've, we've touched on a lot of some safety considerations, harm, But I wonder where ethics come to play here, especially as a pharmacist, you know, and potentially encountering a patient who is biohacking. Carrie, can you speak to that a little bit? What are some some of those ethical issues that maybe our listeners, pharmacists, pharmacy technicians, students, interns, what should they really be aware of in terms of, of biohacking? Sure, and I think that the safety aspect is particularly important and can segue into um, the ethical quandaries that we have because we do rely on the FDA and good manufacturing processes and the supply chain in our country to ensure safe products, like Christy mentioned. So if patients are involved in creating or selling or consuming these self-made or biohack compounds, 
specifically when it comes to the home laboratories and using unregulated biologic substances, the risk of harm really outweighs any theorized benefits. And specifically utilizing the known gene therapy technology we have and attempting to modify human DNA outside of regulated scientific settings, for example, a research lab, that comes uh, with a host of ethical concerns. Circling back briefly again to the the safety perspective, you know, there's always the possibility of off-target effects of gene editing. So that could be the edits ending up in the wrong place on a gene or um, mosaicism, which is where some cells carry the gene edit, but others do not. So it's it's important to know that a lot of the, the gene research specifically into reproduction and embryos has been halted at this time. Um, Ethical concerns uh, relating to that and the the CRISPR gene editing relating to embryos is informed consent. So informed consent can be completed by the parent, but it's impossible for an embryo to provide informed consent. And when the genetic makeup is being changed, um, I think the waters get a little bit murky there. We also need to think about justice and equity as gene therapies, you know, specifically for research, evolve for perhaps a specific subset of conditions. Who has access to these treatments? Is it only, you know, certain patients in certain areas? Does cost factor in? Um, And what disparities uh, will exist regarding access to, to gene therapies? There are also a wide variety of moral and um, religious objections surrounding experimenting on embryos specifically. And so those are some of the the ethical issues regarding biohacking and medical biohacking with human DNA that I think are important to be aware of. Thank you, Carrie. Yeah, I feel like we have just started to dip our toe into this topic. It's so fascinating and has such a wide reach and is more seems to be coming out about it and growing every day. I wanted to know uh, from both of you, maybe starting with Christy, are there any resources out there that you can direct our listeners to to learn more? Thank you, Rena. So surprisingly, you know, this was a topic that I recently just learned about last year as we were reviewing this topic for or Policy Week at ASHP. I think one thing that we need to keep in mind about biohacking is that, you know, there's always the positive and the negative side of things. Nevertheless, I think we need to be more open-minded, and uh, because of the lack of resources available out there online, there is a biohacking conference that's ironically going to happen in Orlando as well next month on September 17th, 19th. And this is uh, developed by David Asprey, who has published several books on biohacking. I think by, you know, either attending this conference or even just kind of learning about what is going to be discussed, I think will provide a greater understanding of, you know, why this is happening and what are the, you know, the different reasons for why, you know, some of these uh, therapies are being developed. There are some references associated with ethics. I found a recorded presentation on synthetic biology in the age of biohacking, and it's through the Applied Ethics Department at the Santa Clara University. I am able to provide that link at some point, you know, via email, but 
what's really great about it is that they, they talk about how a biohacker is not someone who has nefarious goals. It's really someone who tinkers with science and ends up developing something that may have some benefit or maybe some harm to, again, human health, property, and the environment. So that recorded presentation is available, and they also have slides on the website as well. Finally, even just looking at the FDA website or EPA, there really is nothing specifically to biohacking. Uh, the FDA just has a statement about how gene therapy is considered, or the, those CRISPR kits are considered gene therapy and should thus be regulated by the FDA. I think uh, it may be helpful for ASHP to develop you know, a resource for this as well, especially as it becomes more popular and we're really seeing these patients. That's all the time that we have for today. I want to thank Christy and Carrie for joining us for this very interesting discussion on biohacking. We hope that you as listeners enjoyed today's conversation. Please be sure to subscribe to the ASHP podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thanks much. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.